We're still, we're still painting with rather large brush strokes, and um, as we go on, we'll get down to more and more detail. Um, I, I personally have always struggled um, with being taught things about detail without understanding where they fitted. In fact, I found it always really demotivating. It's probably why I gave up maths at school, because they would do all these equations and stuff that I thought, well, you know, I can do it and I can repeat it parrot fashion, but tell me why this matters and, you know, help me understand why, that, why I should be motivated by this. But sadly, I didn't have any teachers who did that. Um, and there's something of that as we approach the Bible like this. This idea of, of covenant is... is one of a number of ways of thinking about the biblical big, big story. But it's an important one. The idea that God enters into a relationship with people. And that he does that graciously and kindly, out of his mercy. And he does it not just so that we can be blessed by him, but always so that we become a blessing to others. Now that pattern that gets established there in Genesis 12, and then you see it, being repeated all the way through the Old Testament in multiple different places. That pattern is the same pattern that continues right down to the present. God never enters into a relationship with an individual or with a group of people just for their sake only, but in order that through them others are blessed, others actually see who this God is and what he's like because of the way that these people live in relationship with him. So we get that basic idea? Begin to see actually that idea then of what God's people's purpose is in the world, what the purpose of the church is in the world. That's an idea that doesn't just start with Pentecost. It's an idea that goes way, 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 way back. Right back to God speaking to this guy Abraham, giving him a new name and blessing him and saying, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. So that idea of blessed to be a blessing is a crucial idea for us just to understand and hold on to. Not least because it will stop us from selfishly holding on to whatever God's blessings are that he gives us, but rather recognizing that their very purpose is to be passed on so that others also might enjoy and share them. That makes sense so far? really important point. It makes a practical difference to the way we think about life right now. So covenant. Book of Genesis. You can read through the book of Genesis. and In fact, in so many ways, the book of Genesis and a lot of the history of the Old Testament is about how this covenant story just seems so perilously close to being completely derailed so frequently. How often God's people mess it up. How badly they screw up on multiple occasions. And that theme of them messing up, rebelling, rejecting their God. And him restoring them kindly. Often after judgment and some form of punishment to restore them. That's a repeating cycle that we'll see throughout Scripture. Into the next book of the Old Testament into Exodus. And you see there, you're wondering, has the, has the whole plan, is the whole plan off target? Is it threatened? Because instead of God's people living under his blessing and showing the world who he is, 
you have God's people enslaved in Egypt in a place of slavery where they're not flourishing. In fact, they're being profoundly persecuted. They're being stopped from worshipping God even the way that that, uh, he's called them to do. And the Exodus is really important, not least because it becomes a pattern for the way that God redeems the way that God does things throughout the rest of the Bible. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we have all these echoes of this Exodus event. So in the Exodus, what we see is things like God defeating the enemies of his people. God freeing his people from slavery. God delivering his people out of a place of slavery and then taking them to a place of flourishing and blessing. God providing for them on that journey towards that place of flourishing and blessing. God's presence being with his people and in the midst of his people on that journey. Guarding, protecting, watching over them. God, after rescuing them from slavery, giving them a comprehensive law that tells them how to live in every aspect of life. Note that law is given after the rescue from slavery, not before. The law comes after grace, not before it. Crucial for us to always remember that in that story of the Exodus. And that story of the Exodus suddenly becomes even more relevant when, as we will do next week, I hope, we look at what Jesus talks about with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9 where it has Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, talking with the two of them, having a chat with Moses about the exodus which Jesus is about to fulfill in Jerusalem. So that Jesus talks about the exodus being fulfilled in what he then did when he went to Jerusalem and died on the cross. Now we'll talk about what that means. What that means for the scope of our understanding of what Jesus did. It's going to involve all kinds of things like rescue from slavery, bringing into freedom, establishing of a new people, living under a new law that comprehensively restores and and makes beautiful every aspect of their life so that the nations can see who this God's like, who this God is and what he's like. That guarantees a destination of flourishing, Um, and safety and security and has his presence in their midst does that make some sense the exodus then becomes a pattern a paradigm for what God does when he rescues and redeems that's the next sort of contour of this biblical story we see people then living under a gracious law and we often think then of law as being sort of plan A that failed It's not how the Old Testament actually sees it. The Old Testament sees that God has graciously rescued these people and given them a law to live by that's an expression of his good character and his designs for their flourishing as human persons in a loving community. That's how the Old Testament sees the law and describes it as being beautiful and lovely. I wonder if we see God's law as being beautiful and lovely. Do we, as the psalmist said, meditate on it day and night and find wonders in it that are sweet? There's a lot of blank faces at this point, so I guess that's a no. But 
that the Old Testament sees the law as being a beautiful expression of God's character and intentions for us, made in his image. We see that generation that travels through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and we see they're repeatedly screwing up. We see the taking of the promised land and the establishing of the people, kind of, in a promised land. And then the time of the judges, when we see just these cycles of sin, rebellion, rejection of their good God, some form of punishment, some form of restoration, cycle after boring cycle. The book of Judges, I don't know how many people have read the book of Judges lately, but it's some of the most graphic, awful, depressing reading in the whole of the Bible. And it certainly pulls no punches. This is no sugar-coated view of reality. It's about as bad as it gets. It would be 18-rated. In fact, I don't even know if it would be passed for viewing in the United Kingdom in cinemas. Some of what's contained in the book of Judges. You have this people who are rescued in this wonderful sense, brought into a covenant relationship, but repeatedly rejected and say, no thanks, we'll get things wrong again. With all the dreadful consequences of that brings. And God in his mercy restoring them over and over again. These cycles of sin, restoration, sin and restoration, sin and restoration. And in the midst of that, or towards the end of that, Judges and then into the book of 1 Samuel, we have the beginnings of a demand for a king. Give us a king, say the people, say God's covenant people. Give us a king, so that we can be like the nations around about us. Again, they've misunderstood. They've misunderstood profoundly that God hasn't called them to be like the nations around about them, but to be a light to the nations around about them. They're meant to show the nations around about them what God's like so that they want to be like them. Not the other way around. And God, again, kindly, gives them a king. At the man for a king, they have a king. And we have the beginnings of this kingdom where we have a king who represents the people. One of the other key things throughout this covenant relationship is there's a representative who heads up God's people, who speaks to God on behalf of the people and speaks to the people on behalf of God. And in the times then of the kings, we have that king being that anointed representative. And there's promises given to that king. There's a false start with Saul and then David becomes king. And there's promises given to David that one of his descendants will rule forever will build a house for God, but God will build a house for him. And a, using house in a double sense of both a place of dwelling and a, um, oh, what's the word? Your descendants, family. Uh, Generations, ancestors. No. Lineage. Begins with a D. No. Dynasty. Thank you. <sighs> not quite sure to blame that mental sort of fuzz on there. What can I blame? Well, I'm just like. Yeah, chill. Yeah, chill. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Each, yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks, you know. Thanks, you know. Yeah. Remember, I get photos of you when you are <laughs> on this computer, so be careful. Right. God makes promises to David, King David, that an anointed descendant, the word is Mashiach, Messiah, an anointed descendant of David will come and will rule and will establish a good reign forever. And there will be a house, a dwelling place for God himself and a dynasty of descendants. Okay, you see something there? Promises to David of an anointed descendant, a Mashiach, a Messiah, who is to come. Throughout then the, 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 the story of the kings, the descendants of David, we don't even see them getting on well enough to retain one line follow it so badly that it then splits and you end up with two kingdoms. You have Israel and Judah, not just Israel. Um, and you have some pretty bleak episodes in the histories of these kings of Israel and Judah. Those, that's the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles give you all of that history. But generally the history is a fairly depressingly bleak one of cycles of sin and restoration but more and more and worse and worse sin. And this initial promise, this design of people living under God's good rule and blessing the nations through showing them who this God is and what he's like, we see it looking more and more like this distant shadow, an out-of-focus, blurred image away in the distance, and God finally dealing with both Israel and Judah by sending them into exile. And at this point in the biblical storyline, we're thinking, what now? This does seem like an absolute disaster. What now of the promise to bless the nations? Where's the story going? Is it derailed permanently? What's going to happen? And you see how this, have you seen how this whole story is beginning to fit together in the different books that I can fit into this story? There's then exile. And then return from exile. But a return that's not exactly glorious. It doesn't even begin to compare to when King David is ruling and his son Solomon, the greatest of all the kings, in all of his splendor, builds this beautiful temple where God's presence lives in the middle of this this temple. And God's presence is in the midst of his people. And the nations come to See who this God is. It looks so far from that, that return. And throughout that story of kings who screw up so frequently, the subtext running through it is, when's God going to send a king to do this right? When's God's king going to come along who's actually going to do this right? Who's going to lead God's people well? the way that God wants them to be led. Who's going to represent God to the people well and the people to God well. Who's going to do it right, finally. When's this going to happen? And that's the expectation, the tension with which the Old Testament finishes. This sense of, what now? Have the promises failed? What's God going to do to redeem this world? What's he going to do to get this story back on track of how he's going to reverse all the effects of this fall? 
is God going to do anything? Can we do anything about it? Or is it just disappointment? That's really how the Old Testament finishes. So that brings us up to the Old Testament. And then a gap between the Old and the New Testaments. About three, four hundred years, something like that. Okay so far? We'll pause. Any questions? Clarifications? Yes. Uh, before the break. Yes, Kira Sorry. Uh, before the break, you were talking about um, the story of unfolding personal relationship through time. Yes. And then you talked about the covenant initially with Abraham. Yes. So would you say that there's ever no covenant whatsoever between people before that? Um, no, not exactly. Um, it's a good question. So, yeah, thank you. Um, we would say that in the covenant, covenant with Abraham, you have the, the first, if you like, um, uh, personal covenant between God and, and people he's drawing into relationship in order to reverse all of this. But you have God actually making a covenant with the whole of creation after the flood with Noah. Um, some people would, would say, I mean, this could get us into to, to some more challenging territory theologically, but some would say that, that, that in a sense there's only really one covenant. In one sense the covenant is, covenant is just a word that describes God's relationship with people through time. And you see that through Abraham. You see it then through King David. And you see how that develops then through time. Uh, it's not that God didn't have any dealings with people before that. And you see that when you read the book of Genesis. Is that okay for, for now, at least here? Yeah, it's not okay. I have more questions than I thought we'd... Sorry? I've got more questions than I thought we'd... Okay. Well, should we talk afterwards? That might, that might be better, because it does get us into... Um, it gets us into more complex issues. Um, I'm using this at the moment just to basically describe the, the way that God deals with this issue that falls by entering into a relationship with people and that they're designed to bless the, the nations. And you see that unfolding nature of relationship. And from Abraham is when, so Genesis 12 marks this sort of turning point in the story where you've seen the disaster of the flood and the horrible effects of sin in the world. God promising never to destroy it again after the flood. What some people describe as the Noahic covenant. And then entering into relationship with Abraham. But it's not as though we don't have any dealings between God and man, because you certainly do in those first three chapters of Genesis. Okay? Alright. Don't know. Be very suspicious of anyone who says that they do. I, I think it's 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 a perilous business to try to to try to put precise dates in any of this, I think. Um, and uh, I mean, you may <laughs> you may have noticed earlier on that I very deliberately commented that that I think the text of Genesis one and two, for example, does not tell us how or how long. And so I, I think it, it remains an open question. And uh, I'm content to leave that open, quite honestly. Uh, I, think, I think to be over-speculative about that is, is, is rather a perilous thing to do. I 
think if God's not seen fit to tell us exactly how long and so on, I'm content with that. Is that okay? Yeah. Right. Does it not have more Yeah, I mean, David's, David's about, what, um, 10, 1100 BC, some, somewhere around about there, yeah. Yeah, um, again, I think we can, we can try to date some things. We can try to date things like the Exodus, um, probably sort of 1500 or so BC. We can try to date Abraham. Um, and uh, I, I think before that, when you get into the history, before Genesis 12, I think it become. Oh, forgive me. The waters become rather muddy. That's a, a bit of a, a pun in the whole. No, no experience. And and I think it. I know some have tried to do that. I mean, uh, classically, I think it was Archbishop Usher who tried to 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 pinpoint the exact date of creation by working back through those genealogies. Um, the, the the question is whether those genealogies also are are complete. Whether they actually do give us every detail and and every. Year that has passed. Um, I can still get away with timeline saving the flood or the start Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think, I think certainly from Abraham forward, we can, we can have some confidence about the the, the dates and the times. And um, a book like Kenneth Kitchen's book on the reliability of the Old Testament would be a good one to go to there, and would give us a, a, a lot of the dates and the times have also been confirmed, for example, by archaeological findings, and would allow us to then say, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, there's a testimony outside scripture as well that, that, that allows us to fairly confidently date some of these things. Even then, there's a lot of arguing about the date of, say, the Exodus. Um, there's a lot of arguing about everything. That's, that's part of the problem. Um, I, I, I think something like, someone like Kenneth Kitchen anyone wants to read that. It's a really, it's a really good book written, I think, towards the end of his life. He was a, an Egyptologist, was his professional career, and wrote this book in a, in a very sort of curmudgeonly grumpy style, in which he basically disagrees with those who don't take the Bible seriously and gives them a smack around the head for it at the same time, because of his knowledge of the archaeological records and the historical records. So, yeah. And yeah, I, I think I think back to Abraham, we can have some confidence. Before that, I think it becomes much more blurry in terms of times. Okay. Any others? Okay, so far, we're up to we're up to return from exile, which is sort of fourth, third century BC, and we've got a gap to New Testament. And this final coming of the king. And it's interesting then, and it's helpful then, that, that John Eleron held up a Bible showing two-thirds being Old Testament and a third being New Testament. Because when you get to the New Testament, it's not the start of a new story. It's the culmination of all this story. And then when this Jesus appears and starts saying stuff about who he is, or why he's come, and what he does, 
what his identity is, what he has come to do. He's basically talking about all of this story and how he fulfills it all. How he actually takes all of that that it pointed towards and fulfills it in himself, in his own life, and in the things that he does, especially in his death and his resurrection. And so understanding then who Jesus is, what he does, why that's important, is in the context of this story. Because he's the king who comes, who fulfills all of the promises that are given to God's people all the way through this story of relationship between God and his people. He's the one who fulfills in these cycles of sin and restoration when God repeatedly sends his prophets to his people to say, stop this, this is what your God says to you and he wants you to now be living like this. And these prophets who are also looking forward to a time when God will send this king who will sort out the problem of his people's rebellion and sin finally and fully and definitively. So when we see Jesus appearing on the scene as coming of the king, it's not plan B, but rather this is where the story was going. This is God fulfilling everything that he's been talking about up to that point. And there's then features of what Jesus does that are entirely consistent with that, that look like the same pattern, the fulfilling of the same kind of exodus. He talks about creating a new covenant. And as we look into this in some more detail, we'll see some more of how it is that Jesus then fulfills all of this. And the fact that he fulfills it, what difference practically that makes to us as well. Jesus life, his death, his resurrection and then the giving of the Holy Spirit inaugurates, kicks off the church age we see then that's when we're living so we're here right, in this church age the time between Jesus' first coming and the return of the king to be a bit Tolkien-esque for a minute or two so there's just a very broad sweep, and this is very, very broad brushstrokes, and we'll, we'll um, go into a little more detail as we go on, as we begin to focus in a bit more closely. A broad sweep of God's dealings with us through history that take us from creation through fall to new creation, and this coming of a king who completes all that God has promised, guaranteeing his redemption and bringing the whole thing to its conclusion in this new creation, this restored good creation. That's just a big picture overview. Pause again and just say any questions or comments or thoughts. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yes, yes. So one of the things, yeah, good, good question. So, the man for a king here is the man for a human king who will be, so that we can be like the nations. But you also see an increasing longing for a king, if you like, through the time of king, the longing for a king who will be the right kind of king. And that's by the time we get to Jesus, people are asking, could this be this king? 
And then the question is, have they understood what kind of king he is? You see the same repetition here, their demand for a certain type of king. God gives them that kind of king as a disaster initially. He then gives them David as more like the right kind of king. When Jesus comes, there's the longing, is this the king who's to come? Is this the one who is to come? And some want him to then be a king like the nations, to give them military victory over the Romans and their oppressors. But instead it's a different kind of king again. So this idea of what kind of king is an interesting one that just runs through it. Yeah. Other questions are possible? Yeah. Yes, yeah, and, and, and there's going to be a question that we're all going to have to wrestle with, and continue to wrestle with. Uh, how, much of, how much of what Jesus does is new? How much of it is fulfillment? So, for example, we could, we could look at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. In the beginning of the book of Isaiah, it talks about the mountain of the house of the Lord as the place where God dwells, the temple, his dwelling place. And it talks about the nations flowing to it, actually flowing uphill to it. It's a fairly dramatic picture. And all the way through the book of Isaiah, this prophet Isaiah, you have these promises about this servant of God who will come and who will fulfill these promises that God's giving. And not least that those promises will include all of the nations coming to becoming part of his people. So in that sense then when you see Jesus coming and you've just read the book of Isaiah, you go, yeah, I see that now. He's the, gosh, it it matches, lo and behold. And of course Jesus starts his ministry and it says in the Gospels, he starts by quoting Isaiah 61. He gives us those, those, those words. Someone quote Isaiah 61. Having another mental blank. Jet lag's really odd, isn't it? But, um, but so, so you get very much this idea through the New Testament. Jesus has come to fulfill. But the fulfillment, and the revolutionary part of it, is that it's not necessarily what people expected. So it's revolutionary in the sense that it takes their expectations, their understanding of what that fulfillment would look like, and turns it upside down. But in one sense, it's more of a correction to their misunderstanding than an introduction of a completely new understanding of it. Is that okay? Yeah. Other questions or thoughts? John, you're catching my eye, so it looks like you want to say something. Or you're just smiling, I don't know. Okay. Right. Is this okay so far? I'm conscious this is big picture, it's big brush strokes, and um, you'll have specific questions that will be triggered by this. One of the things you can just suggest is just that you write some of those down, and then 
you know, we can get to some of the specific questions uh, next week. But what I want to begin to do then is just to show why this matters and how we then interpret this the Old Testament. So we'll have a look at some of that. And then I think next time it's probably going to be that we begin to look at some of this and this. And that's going to help us to think then about the scope of what God's doing. Let me just step back from all of this and see here to start with. One of the things that this big picture is going to mean is that the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done, is that what Jesus has done is nothing less than do everything necessary to reverse all of the effects of that. And that's a fourfold relationship, remember, between God and man, man and himself, the disintegrated self, man and other man, and mankind and creation. Now, if Jesus is restoring all of that, and the scope of what he's doing is to restore all of that and usher in this new creation, then that means that the good news, the gospel, is about a lot more than just Jesus and me. Does that make sense? No, it's not that the gospel... Yeah, it means that the gospel is not just about Jesus and me. It's not about less than that, okay? Because it certainly is about individual and personal relationship with Jesus. But it's about a lot more than that. Because it's about Jesus actually restoring creation. And restoring those who are made in the image of God. And that image is marred and twisted out of shape. And restoring that image, that's a thing we'll come to as we think about how the New Testament talks about what Jesus has done. And that restore, restoration of image means, if you like, creation regained. A, rest, a restoring, a redeeming of what is broken and needed to be fixed. And therefore it's much more than just about me and Jesus and my relationship with Jesus. It's about something that is cosmic in its scope. There's an old hymn that talks about Jesus name and Jesus' redemption um, extending as far as the curse is found. I can't remember which hymn it is, but that, that phrase, as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found, yet further extends what God is doing to redeem it all. And, and so what that means then is that the gospel is bigger than we thought. It's not just about me and Jesus. The gospel starts with, in the beginning, God created. It concludes with a new restored creation. And God creating for himself a people through whom he will bless the nations. So that then the gospel is not just about an individual thing between me and Jesus, but then it's about me and Jesus and his people. Me and Jesus and his people having a purpose in the world to bless the world. Me and Jesus and his people living under his good rule as he redeems and restores everything, be that work or art or leisure or my garden or what kind of food I eat or whatever. Everything. And that's 
heart of what this big picture brings to us is the scope of what God is doing in the world is much more than saying, Sheena, you're very sinful, you need to be forgiven, and then I'm just taking you out of this world like that. Job done. That's not how the Bible pictures it. It's a much bigger picture. It's Sheena, you are indeed very sinful. And you need to be forgiven and reconciled to God. And being reconciled to God, you're now part of His people. In continuity with His people through the ages. His people who have a purpose in the world. A purpose in the world to live together in such a way that we show the world who this God is and what He's like. That we demonstrate to the world the ways of this God. And we call this world to come and to become part of this people of God also. And in doing so, in demonstrating his ways, the one who made all this stuff in the first place and is restoring all this stuff, then everything that you do in your life, from changing nappies to feeding children to cleaning to working outside the house to whatever it happens to be, takes on a significance because you're part of this people called to show this God's ways to the world. Is that making some kind of sense? Everybody? The gospel is bigger, more cosmic in the school. That's good news. It's good news. It's not a gospel that's just about the religious bits of life. It's not a gospel that just applies on Sunday mornings when we come along and sing some songs together. It's a gospel that has something profound to say when I look out at my garden. Or when I think about what to plant in the garden. Or when I sit down to have a meal with my family. Or when I engage with somebody on the train. Or whatever. There's nothing then that becomes insignificant. That makes some sense so far. Okay. Now, we might say that this work of redemption, that line is the mission of God. It's what God's doing in the world. And he's chosen to do that in the world through his people. There's a a wonderful book I can really heartily recommend to you all called The Mission of God's People, written by a guy called Christopher Wright. Um, It's a really, really super book. Fantastic book. It's quite an easy read. It's very practical in a lot of the stuff he talks about. He talks about the fact that that's what God's doing in the world, restoring and redeeming. And he does it through the people he's called into relationship with himself. And um, he spends a lot of time on lots of Old Testament passages in order to illustrate, to show that to them. Okay. Mission of God's people. Now, let's um, look at a well-known Old Testament passage, just to change gear slightly, to make everybody cringe horribly. Do you want to take that just so you can adjust the volume? Because... Paul's playing one of the most naff, one of the more naff songs in, in the world, so I, I apologise for this. So, we've got that big picture in place. You see how that big picture pans out. Now, one of the things that we want to then be able to do, because we've got that big picture somehow uh, a bit clearer in our minds, is to think about how do we read the bits of the Bible in the context of that big picture. And avoid, for example, Old Testament stories just being moral examples to us. Well, they are moral examples, but they're not just moral examples to us. Um, I'm going to actually 
Well, no, I'll, I'll, I'll um, just quickly put this on. Here's some questions they always do that, and this is probably where it's helpful to have the slides. When you're reading any story in the Bible, then, any of the stories in the Old Testament, any stories in the New Testament, here's some questions. Where does this story fit into that bigger story that we just mapped out on that picture? We ask who are the characters involved? Who are the people of God? The people in that relationship with God in this particular story. And what are they doing? What are their conditions at this particular point? Who is leading the people of God at this point? And who are we supposed to identify with? As the readers. As we read it. Who are we meant to be identifying with? We're going to look at David and Goliath. Okay? So we'll come to that in just a second. In what ways can you see the effects of the fall at work? In what ways do you see redemption at work? What aspects of Jesus' work and person can you see here in this passage? And what do you learn in this passage about God, about the people of God, about God's redemption, about your relationship with God, with God's people, and with the world? And then how are you going to respond? Worship, praise, confession, action, to pray and ask God. Now, everyone familiar with the story of David and Goliath? Many people got that at Sunday school. So I'll just quickly, quickly retell it. Here's the way that David Goliath is, is often presented. You've got um, King Saul and his armies, and they're pretty scared of the Philistines. And the Philistines are lined up against them. And amongst the Philistines, they have their champion, this giant called Goliath. And they're all scared of Goliath. And Saul is too scared to go out and fight Goliath, and so is everybody else. They're all cowering. And along comes brave Dave, who comes along and fights Goliath as this little boy with his sling stone and kills Goliath. And then uh, Israel wins. That's pretty much the story. Everyone kind of largely familiar? I mean, it's, it's kind of in our popular culture. We talk about David and Goliath stories the little guy who defeats the big guy. Kind of common cultural reference I think for most of us isn't it okay so let's go back and just review that story Um, (laughs) kids kids things I want you just to notice this because this is this is not just me having a bash at veggie tales because although I found some of it quite funny it was getting a bit annoying after a while so it's not just about it and in fact one of the writers of veggie tales has since then said, you know, what we were doing with the Bible was really wrong. He's, he's, he's you know, come out and said that publicly. We were really handling the Bible quite wrongly and very moralistically. Because often when you read the story of David and Goliath, the lesson is little guys, with God's help, can do big things. That's about it. So you should go and be like David. Yes? That's kind of how it works out most of the time. David trusted God, was very brave, killed the big giant. You need to trust God, be very brave, go and kill the big giants in your life. That's pretty much how it goes. Now you notice on the, the, um, the cover of Vegetables of Dave and the Giant Pickle that, um, how does it, it describe it? A lesson in self esteem. Is that really what the story of David and Goliath is about? Is it really a lesson in self-esteem for 
small American kids, because of course what small American children really need is a boost in their self-esteem. Having lived in the States for two years, I, 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 can, uh, I can say that. Okay. I, I'm being partially facetious, just partial. So, as you hear this horrible song he's about to play, read the blurb that advertises this particular VeggieTales video. Is it going to start? Well, good, it's not going to start. Hold on, try again. Just read that. I say little guys can do big things too. Do you hear it? So with God's help, little guys can do big things too. That's David Goliath. Right. Now, there's a real problem with this way of viewing it because what it ends up with is a thoroughly moralistic way of viewing David and Goliath. This becomes a lesson in self-esteem or a lesson in how little guys like us can do big things and tackle our giants. Now, in view of that big picture... How might we see it differently? Let's put our questions up again, shall we? No, let's. Oops. No, no, no. Good, that's it. Let's just answer some of these questions. Where does the story that you're reading fit into the bigger story? It's just after the inauguration of the kingdom. King Saul is the first king of Israel, and he's proving to be a disaster because he's not obeying God. So the one who's meant to be leading God's people is failing in his leading of God's people, right? Um, And in failing to lead God's people, God's people are in a position of being defeated and helpless and rather hopeless as well. And this therefore fits into that story at a time where you've got the kingdom started but started badly and we're saying, well, this needs a better king. It needs a right kind of king to come along and do this, to lead God's people well, to do what they're meant to be doing in the world. That's where this fits into the big story. Okay, so far? Then we can begin to ask these questions. Who are the characters of all? Who are the people of God in the story of David and Goliath? What are the people of God doing in the story of David and Goliath? That's an open question. Please, someone answer it. Well, there's, I can't remember his name, Mark, but there's a guy that goes to anoint them to pick them out. Yes. And he's the shepherds. So when amongst the brothers, what's the name of Yeah. <laughs> Begin, yeah, absolutely. Um, the beginning of the story of David and Goliath, what you have is you have the, the, you have the people of God who are basically cowering in trenches and cowering in their tents. They're defeated and they're afraid. And they're afraid because they feel absolutely helpless and hopeless. So the people of God at that point are feeling defeated and absolutely terrified of the foe. Okay? 
And it's not just that they're terrified of their foe. They're terrified of their foe, their enemy's champion. Because Goliath is the enemy's champion. And the champion is sent forth by the enemy to represent the enemy and to take on God's people. And he is saying to God's people, bring out your champion to take me on. So what are the people of God doing in the story of David and Goliath? They are looking for their champion to come out and take on Goliath on their behalf. Now, is this beginning to sound a little bit more like a lesson in self-esteem? A little bit more than a lesson in self-esteem. You have God's people defeated, threatened by an enemy they cannot possibly take on because he's too big and too strong for them. And they're desperate for their champion to come or a champion to rise up from amidst their people and take on the enemy and defeat the enemy. And he's not there. The king's the one who's meant to be doing it. King Saul's the one who's meant to be doing that. But he's not doing it. He's sitting, cowering in his tent. He has failed in his job as the anointed king. Now, who are we supposed to identify in this story, identify with in the story of David and Goliath? David. Well, some are saying David. Not directly. Because David is the one who has been anointed and comes as the anointed king, as the champion of God's people to take on the enemy and to defeat the enemy. We are meant to identify with God's people who are defeated without a champion to represent us. Is this beginning to sound a little bit more like the Sunday school answer is now going to be Jesus, isn't it? Because that's what we're meant to be seeing here. This is not about just little guys doing big things. In what ways do we see the effects of fall work? What ways can see redemption of work? And here's the question. What aspects of personal work of Christ do you see in this passage? This isn't just about some guy who comes along trusts God and does a great thing. This is about the people of God, defeated, terrified, desperate for somebody, a champion, their king, to come forward and to represent them, to defeat the champion of the enemy, and then to lead them into a victory that isn't theirs by right. They don't deserve it, but he leads them into it. Because that's what we see, of course. David does defeat Goliath. And in defeating Goliath, he then leads God's people into a victory over their enemies. Now, as soon as you start to frame it that way, and we say we don't identify in that story first and foremost with King David. Because King David is the one who's the anointed king. The Mashiach. And it's King David's greater son. As another old hymn puts it, King David's greater son, Jesus, who does exactly this. And what we're meant to see in this is this prefiguring of Jesus, where Jesus is our champion. The one who, on our behalf, stands up against an enemy that's otherwise overwhelming. When we are defeated and unable to bring about victory for ourselves, And it's this Jesus who stands up in our place and takes on the enemy and doesn't just take him on but defeats that enemy. 
And in defeating that enemy leads us into victory over that enemy as well. Because we're part of his people and he's our champion. Now do you see then how knowing that big picture, having a bit more of an idea of that big picture, avoids us seeing that story as just a little moral example. Of course, at a human level, it is a moral example because David is a real person actually really carrying out these actions. But he's carrying out these actions in the capacity of the anointed the anointed king of God's people, the representative, the champion. And the fact that he's a little boy, he's not a little boy, he's a young man, and that apparent weakness overcomes apparent strength is another wonderful theme that runs through the whole scripture as well. That strength isn't necessarily what we think it is, and power isn't necessarily where we think it is or how it looks like it is either. And what do we learn from this passage about God, about the people of God, about his redemption, about your relationship with God, about God's people in the world? Well, we can learn lots of things then. Um, Certainly we can learn about trusting God by looking at David's trust. But primarily this is a passage that points us towards David's descendant. David's anointed descendant, the Messiah who's to come who stands in our place, who defeats all of the enemies and leads us in that victory when we are absolutely helpless. And so in that passage, in this story, we see something more of who Jesus is so that when you come to read the Gospels, you're then reading the Gospels not just as a new story, but you're beginning to see these echoes of, ah, now if he's descended from David, oh, right, So when Jesus encounters the devil in the wilderness, when Jesus on the cross says it's finished, when he defeats his enemies on the cross, when he rises from the dead, when his people seem scattered and helpless and hopeless, and he wins a victory on their behalf, I'm suddenly seeing this much bigger picture that's gone right back. Does that make some sense? So this is... One of the ways in which just having a bit of a better, clearer picture of that big picture in the Bible helps us avoid just lessons in self-esteem. And helps us to begin to see this Jesus. How do we respond to this? Well, you can respond to the story of David and Goliath first and foremost by praising God for, for this Jesus. By, for example holding on to the fact the New Testament teaches us that Jesus has defeated all of our enemies, that Satan is defeated, that all the powers of evil are ultimately defeated. And because he has won that victory and leads his people in that victory, we have nothing to fear. So in that story, we can begin to praise Jesus for that. We can feel more confident in what Jesus has done. We see the fulfillment of that military victory in a much, much greater victory. We can recognize that in our own felt helplessness and need, we have a champion who not only has done everything necessary, but continues to do everything necessary to bring about the victory for his people. Not just then, but now. So we can have confidence. We can be encouraged to be strong in him, to stand firm, to not be afraid 
of the evil one and all that he might do to try to derail us. And then, once we've done all that and praised Jesus and placed our trust firmly in him, then we can learn lessons about the little guy who does good things too. But first of all, this is a story really that points us firmly towards, towards Jesus. I wonder if that's probably a good place to stop for today. Is that okay, Andy? Mm-hmm.